I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore innovative thinking and thought leadership through interviews, commentary, and conversation with best-selling authors. Today's podcast interview is with John Grisham. Yes, the John Grisham. And in it, we talk about his new book, The Guardians, which came out on October 15, 2019. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas for the Dallas Museum of Art series Arts and Letters Live on October 24th. Enjoy. Good evening. Thank you for braving the weather and being here for what I'm sure will be a fantastic program. Psychologists have found that there's only one way to change a person's mind, and that's to change his heart. And the research shows that the best way to change somebody's heart is not with statistics or reams of data, but rather with stories. And thank goodness we're here tonight to hear a person who the New York Times has said is as good a storyteller as anybody we've got in the United States today, and that's our friend John Grisham. Thank goodness John uses his heart-changing, mind-changing story power to address parts of our criminal justice system that are unacceptable to people of conscience and in need of change. In that regard, John supports two important causes for which all of us should lock arms and do what we can do to move the needle toward having a better, more consistent system of justice in America. The first cause, like John, we need to lock arms and join those in the trenches who work with the Innocence Project. And that includes Centurion Ministries, who work to exonerate wrongfully convicted innocent people who spend years in prison. John's new thriller, The Guardians, which we'll talk about tonight, is about the work of these good people. Guardian Ministries and its leader, Cullen Post, in the book are based on Centurion Ministries and its founder, James McCloskey, to whom John has dedicated the book. Because of these egregious circumstances by which innocent people spend decades in prison. For many years, John has served on the board of the Innocence Project, and he consulted with the project's leaders in creating the story of the innocents. As you saw on the screen, a portion of tonight's proceeds will go to the Innocence Project. A second important cause to John that we need to uh, support is for us to help provide funding for legal aid and access to justice for those in America with pressing needs who can't afford a lawyer. His desire to support legal aid inspired his novel, Gray Mountain, that came out five years ago, which was the story of a young woman who got laid off by her Wall Street law firm and then went to work at a legal aid center in coal mining country, Southwest Virginia, where for the first time in her career, she gained fulfillment by helping real people with real problems. And in writing Gray Mountain to make the story authentic, John consulted with legal aid lawyers from the Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Whitesburg, Kentucky. So for years, John has served on the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation that provides funding for 133 independent legal aid programs in all 50 states, including three of the biggest and best right here in Texas, Legal Aid of North Texas, the Lone Star Legal Aid, and Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. 
Tomorrow night, John's going to be the keynoter at a big fundraising dinner in Austin that will raise money for the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. So John's discipline and his capacity to tell spellbinding stories has empowered him to write 42 books, which and they've sold over 300 million copies. They've been translated into over 50 languages, which means that for decades his novels have been read every day all over the world. This level of success gives John a platform that he uses generously because he knows that the work of the Innocence Project and legal aid programs can make our system of justice and therefore our society better, but only if all of us join him in supporting these important causes. Please welcome John Grisham. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, thank you. John, we're here to... quite the introduction. It was too long. I asked you for a brief introduction. Yeah. That's what I got. I, I talked to a mutual friend of John's and mine in Charlottesville. I said, John doesn't like any introduction if it's more than three sentences. Yeah. So forgive me. But John, we're here to talk about your new book, The Guardian, The Guardians. And an article in yesterday's uh, Waco Tribune says The Guardians is based on a case that took place in Clifton, Texas, over 30 years ago. And in that article, you said the case in Clifton was, quote, too irresistible to pass up. So what made the facts of that case so irresistible that it was the springboard for this novel? Well, first of all, uh, it's always nice being in Dallas. Um, I've been here many times for book stuff and, uh, and baseball stuff and uh, weddings and family stuff and a lot of friends here, and it's always a fun town to visit. Um, one of my favorite Dallas stories is 25 years ago, I got to interview Nolan Ryan in his last year with the Rangers in the old stadium for NBC Today show. They asked, they wanted one celebrity to interview another celebrity, and so I asked if uh, Nolan would do it. And he said he would. And so I flew down here, and we, before the game, he was in uniform, and we sat in front of the dugout. And I interviewed Nolan Ryan for a long time. They cut it down to seven minutes. Uh, but it was, <laughs> it was a brilliant interview, okay? And uh, that was one of my favorite Dallas stories. But I've uh, been here many times and uh, always enjoyed Dallas. Um, so what was the question? There... The question was, what is about this case in well, Clifton? Okay. Well, listen, every, every, uh, every wrongful conviction case is a fascinating story because of the uh, immense human suffering, the injustice, the loss of, of life, freedom, the loss of the, the, the waste of money, the wasted life. Every wrongful conviction case, and there are thousands of them, okay? We haven't scratched the surface. We've had 2,500 exonerations in the last 25 years. Okay, that's a fraction of the innocent people in prison. I think we're learning as we do more and more, we, we realize how many innocent people are there. We have two and a half million people in prison, which is a whole different issue, a whole different book, mass incarceration and, you know, sentencing disparities and all the other issues I want to write about. Um, 
But if you, the highest incarceration rate the world has ever seen in a civilized nation. Uh, so that's what we've done. They're there. Uh, how many are innocent? Um, it's impossible to know because no one has, there's not enough money and time to go back and check every case. But there have been studies. On the low end, it's 2%. On the high end, 10%. Do the math. There are thousands of innocent people in prison. So anyway, um, that's what I've been you know, writing about for a long time. But every innocence case, especially the ones where people are, are sent away for a long time and where they've been sent to death row. And we've had uh, several hundred people off of death row a- after DNA exonerations. Uh, the cases are all fascinating. I was struck by Joe Bryan's case out of um, Clifton, Texas, because he'd been in prison for almost 35 years for killing his wife, a crime he could not have possibly committed uh, because of, there was just almost no evidence against him. And uh, I, I read this article in the uh, New York Magazine last summer because uh, I'm always reading articles about um, wrongful convictions and issues related to, um, you know, problems with the judicial system, our legal system. That's, that's where I live. I live in that world of uh, wrongful convictions, prisons, th- things that go wrong with the, the system, and, and, and that's what I write about. But I, I became captivated with Joe's story and um, became convinced that this guy was, like a lot of people, this guy was wrongfully convicted in a small town and sent away, and he's still there. So I st- as I do, I, what I do, I steal the story. I, I stole the, you know, that's what, that's what writers do. You've done it too. Okay. <laughs> you, hear a good, you hear a good story and you say, okay, I, that, I can take that sto- story or something close to that and fictionalize it and make it a very compelling, readable story. That's mm-hmm. what I do. Well, well, the story of Joe Bryan and, and in The Guardians allows you to target many of the deficient aspects in today's criminal justice system. So let's take them one at a time. How long do, I mean, how long do we have? We, we, <laughs> We've got four hours. We're going to see how tight and concise you can be. Uh, Junk science, which comes from the mouths of so-called expert witnesses. Is it as bad today as it was in the 1980s and 90s? It's uh, it's cleaning up a bit because of DNA. What happened starting in the 1970s, uh, we spawned off all these uh, experts who began testifying in criminal trials, uh, stuff like uh, bite mark analysis, hair analysis, boot mark analysis, boot print, uh, arson, all these blood splatter, all these different theories about crime scene analysis and, and forensics that are, that are not based on science. And what, what happened, these guys sort of proliferated. Most of them, a lot of them were former policemen who wanted to start testifying. And almost none had scientific backgrounds and they were allowed to test. The more they testified, the smarter they became, and their resumes got thicker. And you, you know, just t- take a murder in a small town in Texas or Mississippi, anywhere, pick, pick a small town. You have a sensational murder, the, the community's horrified, they want the person arrested and off the street and convicted and sent away so we can all rest, okay? So there's a rush to, to convict somebody, and, and then the police are maybe not that sophisticated, and they bring in um, an expert from, as you know, as a lawyer, the farther away he comes, the smarter he is. And being from the South, if an expert came from California, my God, he walks on water. He's from California. 
or New York. I mean, you know, they're Yankees, but they're smarter, okay? And they, they, they testify and, they, you know, they, have, they, have, uh, they wear nice suits and they have big vocabularies and they're professional testifiers. They do it all the time. And they're extremely convincing because, again, they practice a lot. They get paid for it. And they are able to convince, in Joe's case, there was nothing linking Joe to the murder of his wife. There was no motive. There was no marital problems. He was two hours away in Austin the night she was murdered. Uh, He had had an eye uh, deficiency, so he couldn't drive at night. The weather was terrible, so he had to drive two hours from his motel room in Austin back to Clifton, murder his wife for no reason, drive back to Austin, go back to the hotel, go to sleep, and nobody ever saw it. That was the theory, okay? It's ridiculous, all right? But anyway, these guys, these experts can testify. The only evidence that they found that, that put Joe away, there was a flashlight they found in the trunk of his car. It was not removed from the crime scene. It was not found at the crime scene. It was found later in the trunk of his car. And the lens of the, of the, the two-inch lens of the flashlight had what appeared to be uh, back spatter or blood, blood stains. And so this expert uh, at trial with certificates and a resume and a vocabulary convinced the jury that this flashlight found in Joe's trunk was at the scene of the crime. So therefore, Joe held the flashlight as he shot his wife and the blood blew back. That's all they had. That was 35 years ago, and he's been convicted twice. 24 jurors bought that, and Joe's in prison. So anyway, what was the question? Junk, junk science, and is it getting any better? It's getting better because of DNA. Okay. DNA has exposed a lot of these uh, experts. A lot of them have run away, and they're hiding. They, they can't come out because they're not qualified. Uh, the expert in Joe's case uh, has backed away from his testimony. Too late. He's been there for 35 years, okay? But he's, the expert's changed his mind, said I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? You've been sent to prison because of expert testimony, and 35 years later, the expert says, I got it wrong. And he's still in jail. Oh, he can't get out. The case is pending before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and it's been sitting there for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's been denied parole, I don't know, eight or nine, ten times. Uh, I don't know the exact number. Joe, he got denied last year. He's, he has congestive heart failure. He's in terrible health. We're trying to get him out before, you know, before, he, before, dies. He, died, before he dies. The, the, the second uh, aspect of the criminal justice system that you point out is the use of jailhouse snitches to testify that a defendant allegedly made a confession. Now, is there any movement afoot to stop this use of frequently perjured testimony? Well, I don't know if there's, um, I'm not aware of a, of a movement to stop it. What happens in most civilized jurisdictions in criminal trials, if you have a jailhouse informant, uh, he has to come in for a special hearing before the judge who is extremely skeptical. These guys all have criminal records, uh, most of dealing with drugs, and they're not stable. And so they, um, the judge quizzes the, the informant, uh, especially about deals you made with the prosecutor. I mean, it, it's really very intimidating. Mm-hmm. So it really um, takes some of the enthusiasm away from the prosecutors in using jailhouse snitches. We don't have that here. We don't have that. And what happens, and what happened today somewhere in a courtroom in America, 
Every jail has a, uh, a meth head facing 15 more years. He doesn't want to go back, okay? And the cops know him. And the cops will go to him and say, hey, uh, we, could, we can cut you a deal here. We've got this murder suspect, this sensational murder down the road, uh, and we're going to bring him in here. And by the way, here are the facts, maybe some photographs of the crime scene. We're going to put him in your cell. You talk to him for a while, okay? He'll probably want to confess to you, a stranger. And oftentimes they'll bring the, um, the suspect in from another jail for no reason to put him in with the snitch or take the snitch to the, other, to, the, to the jail where the suspect is. And so the suspect has no idea what's happening. They put this guy in his cell. They hang out for a couple of days. There's nothing else to do but talk. And then the snitch, you know, after two days, says, hey, tells the cops, I got a full confession. He bragged about killing his wife. It was, you know, it was fun, whatever, whatever the details were. And so they let the guy out. The guy goes back. And six months later, at trial, the defendant's sitting there. They bring in the snitch who's all dressed up and, you know, just coat and tie, whatever. Um, got a haircut. And he's trying to, uh, he, he sounds pretty good. And jurors, your average juror cannot believe that a person will take the witness stand and take the oath, and then sit there and tell a, a total uh, fictional tale, a total lie about the confession. But we don't believe that people do that. And so jurors believe these guys. And then he, the guy, you know, he testifies, does a great job, and the defendant forgot who he was. He hadn't seen him in six months. And uh, then he, cut, he gets out of jail and doesn't go back to prison. That, and there are, there are snitches who have testified Many times. Mm -hmm. They're professional snitches. They're druggies. They get caught all the time. They know how to get out. They game the system. Hey, I'll get your confession. And that's the way jailhouse snitches work. Mm -hmm. and, they're, and, and we still use them all the time. There are people serving time today, <laughs> a lot of people, because of bogus jailhouse snitches. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, as you've talked about, uh, this is really about the Innocence Project and Innocence Lawyers. The, the lead character is an innocence lawyer as well as a cleric. But there's probably many people in the, in the audience who don't understand what innocence lawyers do, how they operate. You, you talked about how many uh, successful exonerations, although it's the tip of the iceberg. But talk about what do innocence lawyers do kind of as a, as a monthly routine or a yearly routine? How do they go about their business? You, there are, there's, there's a one big innocence project in New York. I'm on the board of it. It's founded by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld 25 years ago. And they really pioneered DNA testing. And they, they take only... Um, DNA cases, and most crimes do not involve DNA. Uh, so the DNA cases are the easy ones. None of it's easy. But at least you have clear biological proof that, that cannot be controverted in court. Uh, what the Innocence Project does in New York, we get um, thousands of letters from inmates, and we screen the letters, and we have, we have people know how to screen them and look for certain clues. The ones who look uh, promising will request the, uh, the inmate to send the transcript. Every inmate has his, has his file, mm -hmm. which is a trial transcript and all the other stuff that goes into a, uh, the, the, a criminal transcript. It, it, they ha all have them in there under their bunk, bunk or cot or where they are, and they send them. Mm -hmm. and it takes some or thousands of pages long. We plow through that, and if there appears to be a reasonable chance of a real claim of innocence, we pursue it. 
We'll send investigators to go, you know, investigate. We'll send lawyers to go to the, to the prison to meet with the guy for the first time. It can take two or three years to make a decision about whether or not to take a case mm -hmm. because there are so many cases. We can only take so few limited resources, uh, and we have to be very careful about the ones we take. And then once we become even more convinced, we will, if, there, if it's possible, uh, if there's still a legal, a valid legal claim that we can grab somewhere and file again, every state's different. Uh, every state has different rules, and it's a minefield of navigating that to get back into court on some claim mm -hmm. and hopefully at some point find a sympathetic judge who will listen and we keep going. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we have to fight like crazy to get DNA testing. But the prosecutors almost always fight that. They don't want DNA testing. And we say, what are you afraid of? Let's t we'll pay, we're paying for it. You know, we, we've got the money to pay for DNA testing. Let's, let's do it. Um, if we get to the point of DNA testing, um, we don't advertise this, but it's, it's, it's part of the business. We're transparent. Half the time, after going through all of that and getting the testing done, half the time, the DNA testing nails the guy. And you want to go back to prison and beat the crap out of the guy, okay? But, <laughs> but, the, but you don't. But they're, they're tough guys. Uh, you stay away. You, you, you think, oh, we wasted all this time and money. Why? You know why? Uh, but that's just part, that's part of the business. But the, the ones we take, if, if, if DNA testing excludes <coughs> our client, uh, then we get really aggressive about getting them out. And that's not easy even with DNA testing. We have to file different motions, different litigations, maybe get a different judge. That can drag on for years after DNA testing. Mm -hmm. and so I've said it in the book, and I've said it many times, it's relatively easy in this country to convict an innocent man. It's virtually impossible to get one out of prison. Mm -hmm. Now you say, uh, when you finally do make a decision to take a case, you say sometimes you've got to be aggressive. And in the book, you talk about sometimes it's necessary for an innocent lawyer to, quote, get his hands dirty with sneaky, borderline, unethical, illegal tactics in order to achieve the goal of exoneration. Is that, how do you feel about that? That part's fiction. That's fiction? Yeah. Okay. That's why I asked the question. That just made the I would story never better. admit that one of my innocence lawyers would do anything wrong, okay? I can't admit that. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, truthfully, um, I was a uh, criminal defense law lawyer for only 10 years and uh, it was a very short, unsuccessful career <laughs> before I moved on to other things. Um, and I had, you know, I had a lot of trials and a lot of clients and um, there were times when I felt like the other side maybe was cheating mm -hmm. and a lot of ways to cheat. And I was faced with the temptation of maybe cutting a corner here or there. And so that's where that comes from. But in my book... But that was fiction. But it didn't all, make the story better. All well, that made the story better. Yeah, it's always about story. Now, now uh, talking about this commitment to innocence and all the time that you spent with prisoners in prison, the Waco article talked about, this is part of your heritage, that, that you found recently that, that your mother had a commitment to, to prisoners. To talk about yeah. how seeing that that was something that your mother did 
Yeah, we, did, we didn't know it. Uh, Mom died four years ago in Arkansas, and she was a, a very devout Christian. She raised all of her kids that way. And um, when she passed away, we found um, some letters that, let, that, uh, that she had received from inmates in prison. It was, she, she didn't copy her letters. We couldn't find the letters she sent. Uh, my mom was um, notorious in the family for sending cards. Every birthday, Christmas, anniversary, she had five kids and grandkids and all that. And you got a card. I mean, it was a job. She sent the cards. She, uh, she was just clockwork. And we laughed about it, you know, at, the, at her funeral. We said, thank God, you know, the cards are over, you know. <laughs> 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 We're tired of the cars, Mom. Uh, joke, jokingly, of course, because she was a saint. But uh, we had no idea that she had this extensive uh, correspondence going with uh, with prisoners, mm-hmm. and we, we we found a bunch of her letters. Mm-hmm. Well, let's now kind of explore beyond the book, kind of uh, the way you approach your, your your job writing novels. You've now been doing this for thirty years. Mm-hmm. And uh, very disciplined, amazingly prolific, 42 books in 30 years, sometimes two a year, in fact, often two a year. And to do what you do and have the success you have, you really got to have discipline, you got to have imagination. So let's talk first of all about the discipline. What's your process for creating these dazzling plots that you put together in all your books? That... The discipline is. I'm constantly on the search for the next story, and search being headlines, uh, newspapers, magazines, watching lawsuits, trials, uh, litigation, uh, courts, opinions. Um, a lot of, and I don't watch trials. I keep up with trials. Watching lawyers. Um, frankly, Talmadge, when you watch lawyers, the material is endless. <laughs> a lot of good stuff. A lot of rich, a lot of rich characters. A lot of rich characters. Uh, for example, you know the, the headlines every day the, today, today, tomorrow, and last week was the the opioid crisis. And I know some lawyers who are involved in that. It's really complicated from a legal point of view because you've got litigation raging all over the country: individual lawsuits, class actions, state lawsuits against the pharmaceuticals. Big Pharma, the Sackler family, all, you know, it's, it's a huge, big, you know, uh, evolving story. There's a big, fat novel there somewhere. I don't have it yet. But I'm, I'm But you're try- reading. I'm, try- I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, I'm really trying to get there. Um, I went down to Brownsville last month to the border with a, with a humanitarian group to, to, to provide some relief, and my wife went with me, but I was also kind of looking for a novel. Yeah, uh, sniffing around for a story. Um, Guantanamo. You know, we've had we've had prisoners at Guantanamo for 17 years. We've never charged yet. These guys were were, were snatched by our people in foreign countries. Many of them were tortured, brought to Guantanamo. They've never been charged. It's a lawyer's. They're huge legal cases. Mm-hmm. Are, are we going to put them on trial or whatever? Mm-hmm. That's fascinated me for years. I don't have the novel. But I'm always looking for that next story. Yeah, but once you've got that story, then you've got to create a plot. You've got typically 40-some-odd chapters. What's your process for creating the plot? Well, when I think about a story, uh, I, I start off with the... I have to love the idea of it. And I start off with the, uh, the, the beginning. Michael, my, my... Oh, first page. I mean, 
I, I want to hook you on the first page. Uh, I, I want to keep you engaged. I want you skipping work, calling in late for work, staying up late at night, <laughs> skipping lunch. I want you to read the book in two days, and, and I want the pages to turn. I mean, that's what I, I'm serious. I, I love to read a book like we all do. Uh, that's, very, that's very deliberate. So once I have the hook, uh, and once I have an ending that is not what you expect, okay, hopefully, the hard part is the 300 pages in the middle that, <laughs> that to, to maintain that narrative tension to keep the pages turning. And, and that's, that's, that's often difficult. So I, I literally sit down and say, okay, I've got, I've got mentally, I've got the, the beginning and I've got the end and I'll work on the middle. So I'm going to write chapter one, here's a paragraph, okay? Chapter two, here's a paragraph. Chapter three, and when I get to chapter 40, I, I, I hope I should be done. And that forces me to outline the whole story, to look at the whole story, to, to decide, okay, I don't need that subplot. I don't need that character. Maybe I do need something else. And when you, when you, when you plan the whole story like that, this just can take a long time. I mean, this can take a long time. Uh, and, and oftentimes it doesn't work. After I get all that done, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. Uh, but when you plan the whole story, you, you really, the, the novel is so much easier to write and you don't get lost. When you write suspense and thrillers and mystery and police novels and things like that, you better know where you're going when you start mm -hmm. uh, because it's easy to get lost. Well, you, you say you start every year on January 1, and your goal is to finish by July 31? July 1. July 1. So you got six months. Yeah. Out of those six months, how much time is spent outlining compared to the writing? The outline's done. The oh. outline, when I start January 1, the, oh, outline, the outline's done. I've, I've got three or four outlines going right now that have been oh, okay. going for a long time. And again, most of them eventually kind of don't work. Um, but it's, it's a process of always accumulating stories, and, and so, some of the stories need to just kind of fester for a while and then go away. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a book called uh, The Rooster Bar a couple mm -hmm. of years ago about a for-profit law school. I read an article in a magazine called The Great Law School Scam uh, in the Atlantic uh, Monthly of, written by a great journalist, and it was about these for-profit law schools how they're making money off kids who shouldn't be in law school and can't pass a bar exam. When I finished that article, I said, that's a story. That's a novel. That's a I've novel. got that novel, okay? Yeah. That's how easy it was. Mm -hmm. I got into Innocence work in, uh, 15 years ago. I read an obituary. Ron Williamson. Uh, Ron Williamson in, uh, in Ada, Oklahoma. And he, he was our age, went to prison when he was young, uh, came within five days of being executed in Oklahoma for a murder he had nothing to do with. And uh, a, the hero is a young female law clerk who late at night uh, read, the, read his file, and she kept reading, and she kept saying, this guy did not get a fair trial. She didn't say he's innocent. She said he didn't get a fair trial. And so she went to her other colleagues, other law clerks, because they worked they work for Judge Frank C. In, in Seminole, Oklahoma, and he hated habeas stuff. He didn't have any use for it. And they knew that. And so she got all the other clerks and convinced them, and they walked in Judge C's office one day and shut the door, and they had an intervention. <laughs> and they said, Judge, this guy is scheduled to die in five days. He did not get a fair trial. And Judge C said, okay, sign the order. Save Ron's life. And I talked to Judge C about it when I was doing the work, and, and, uh, and he said, you know, I said, but sure, Judge, back then, you, they would appeal to the Tenth Circuit. It would take them. Somebody would have stopped the execution. 
He said, not in 1992. They would not have stopped him. Oklahoma was killing people, you know, regularly. He said that he would, he would have been dead. So, I remember when that book came out, I've got a friend in Dallas who came up to me and said, I'm from Ada, Oklahoma. And all I can tell you is, it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talked about the outlining, but it's one thing to do an outline. It's something else. Time Magazine has described the pacing of your plots as, quote, ranging from fast to breakneck. So, so what's the key to pacing plots so that it's always moving? Each chapter, there's something new, there's something new, there's something new, to keep that interest going chapter after chapter. Oh, well, um, <laughs> a lot of it is just, um, there's certain tricks, okay? A couple of tricks. Um, some chapters are shorter than others. Some chapters leave you hanging, others don't. Uh, there's always the constant issue of how much dialogue, because I love dialogue, it's easy to write, um, uh, as opposed to long descriptive scenes that I get bored with. And there's just always that constant tension of how much dialogue really, dialogue turns pages. You know, dialogue, as, as a writer, you get through a lot of stuff real fast. So you don't want to use too much of it. It's just, it's just a constant, and it goes back to the outline. When you, when you know where you're going and what points you have to pass to get there and what subplots you have to flesh out to get there, it's just a process. I can't, I really can't tell you. I don't want to tell you how to do it. All right, that's fine. <laughs> All right, beyond the, 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 the outlining and the, and, and, the, and the plotting and the pacing, let's talk about editing. Before you let anybody see what you've written, how many times have you rewritten it typically? I do the first draft, uh, you know, five or 10 pages a day, a thousand words, 2,000 words a day. Um, and then I print that out. That's my backup, the hard copy, you know, backup. Nobody ever sees that. Um, then when I start the next morning, I go back and reread and edit what I wrote the day before. So there's a lot of cleanup there, a lot of changes there, um, and, it, and I get, it gets me back in the rhythm of the story. So I go through that process. Um, uh, constantly tinkering, uh, checking facts. I hate research. I learned to hate research in law school. <laughs> I avoided research for 10 years as a lawyer. And now when I need legal research, we live in Charlottesville, UVA law schools, there's a top 10 law school, great law school. And so I always have some UVA law student, you know, on the payroll. And uh, <laughs> these kids are really smart, man. And I give them what I, you know, give me a memo on whatever the, the issue is. And they, they write these beautiful two and three page, uh, you know, summaries of what the law is. And I just script, scratch out their name, put my name on it, and stick it in the novel. <laughs> and so people think I'm a genius when it comes to the law. I, have, you know, I haven't done either. That's, 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 that's my research. But when I get all that done, uh, about halfway through the novel, I'll finally, uh, you know, kind of hogtie Renee. To His read, wife. To, yeah, to read the first draft. She's really bored with the whole thing, but she... she after 40 books, she's really bored, but, I, but, but she has to read it first, and she knows that. She's bored with it, but, she, but I cannot send the book to New York until she's read it, because she reads it with a red pen and uh, really has, has far too much fun um, <laughs> with her comments. 
And then we go through this process back and forth. And she has a real eye for story and a real eye for character And because she, she's a voracious reader. We go back and forth for a while. So by the time the book goes to my editor, David, my, David Gurnett, my agent now, uh, it's in pretty good shape. And then David, I have, I have always uh, listened to my editors. I've always listened to my publishers. I've listened to my wife. And that's, a, that's one reason the books are always put together nicely because I do listen. And so the editing process goes on for, um, I tell students all the time, you know, there are two things you don't want to talk about when you're writing. Is you're, you're, I don't care if you're a student or if you're an aspiring novelist, nobody wants to outline. It's painful. Tough. And nobody wants to revise and edit because you're done. You want to, you know, you want to get it published. And those two, are, those two elements are crucial. You've got to outline to plan your story, and you've got to sweat the editing and revising from somebody you trust. Mm-hmm. I tell students, find somebody who loves you and wants you to succeed. It can be a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, mother, parent, English teacher, whatever. Find somebody who loves you, and they want you to succeed, but they can be tough on you, and you'll listen to them. That's crucial. I got lucky with my wife. She, you know, she's... She, well, uh, I, I want you to tell the, it's one of my favorite stories of your life, is that when you've been practicing law for 10 years, kind of bored with it, the trial took place in the town, you observed it, and you said, oh my gosh, there's a novel here. Tell the story of, of how uh, instrumental Renee was in providing the encouragement to believe in yourself. I had never written anything. Uh, I had never talked about writing. Uh, we had always read a lot. She was an English major at, at Ole Miss. And uh, I stopped reading in law school because I had to read all the other you know, crap they make you read in law school. So I, I stopped my reading pleasure, and I couldn't wait to pick it back up again after law school. And uh, the first few years we were married, we, you know, we, we just had piles of books around the house, and we still do. Uh, so we read a lot. And um, I, I started writing A Time to Kill, it wasn't called that then. It was just a novel about a courtroom drama. And I actually wrote the first, I wrote the whole book on, in longhand on legal pads. And when I finished the first chapter, uh, I wanted her to read it. And I was very nervous about asking my wife to read something I'd written because I'd never written before. And I was so nervous, I gave it to her and I, and I went outside and, and walked around the block a few times, you know, to get out of the house. And I uh, came back, and um, I said, uh, what do you think? She said, I like this. I'd like to read some more. I said, well, okay. I'll go write some more. I don't have any more. I just got one chapter. Uh, and so we started this process of, you know, I'd write a chapter and show it to her. And this went on for a long time, and she was uh, very encouraging. There were times when I put it down and, you know, lost interest. And I was writing it at 5 o'clock in the morning which is not a lot of fun. And, but there's um, no distractions. No, no, none at all. None at all. It was very quiet. Mm-hmm. And um, kids were asleep, and that's when the best time, still the best time to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and every time I would stop for a month or so, she would you know, kind of nudge me back to the story. And um, I would not have finished the first book if not for her. The funny thing happened after A Time to Kill came out in 30 years ago, 89, and it was a total flop. Um, they printed 5,000 hardback copies. We couldn't give them away. I mean, it was just a small unknown press in New York. I was unknown. Uh, it sold very well around Memphis and Jackson, Mississippi, and that was about it. 
the rest of the world didn't know about it. And it never went to paperback. I mean, it, did, it didn't go to paperback then. It didn't go to, to foreign markets back then. And, and that was kind of a disappointment. But I had a great idea for the next book. And I told Renee, I said, I'm going to write one more book. And if it flops, I'm done with this secret hobby. I'll just, I'll just be a lawyer and just keep suing people. You know, that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and uh, so I, I said, I've got this, I've got a great idea. I've got an idea. I didn't call it great. I have an idea for another novel. Um, it's about a young lawyer fresh out of law school who goes to work for a law firm in Memphis that's secretly owned by the mafia. And once you join the firm, you can't get out. And um, she just, she stopped cold. She said, she said, do that, say that again, do it again. You know, audition one more time and pitch it one more time. And I did. She said, that's a big book. That's a big book. That could work. And I wrote a two-page uh, treatment and sent it to my agent in New York because he was itching for another book. And he uh, called immediately. He said, this is a big book. Where is it? I said, well, okay. <laughs> give me a couple of years and I'll get you the book. <clears throat> and uh, that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Now, besides all the, the discipline and the editing that, that goes into the book, Obviously, to make for a great entertaining read, you've got to have a fantastic imagination. So I don't want to spoil any aspect of the plot of The Guardians, but at a critical point in the story, you give yourself the opportunity to describe two men's entry into a haunted farmhouse, a place that its owners say is, quote, too dangerous to enter because unlocking its doors could release all kinds of evil. So tell us how a powerhouse novelist turns on your creative juices, close your eyes, envision, and just say, I gotta make this as scary as I can make it. How'd that process go? Well, there's a certain sickness involved in it. I mean, you... I thought you were going to ask about the crocodile scene. Well, that's that, tomorrow night. Tomorrow, okay. There's a scene involving uh, uh, a zip line over a pond full of crocodiles in, in, uh, in somewhere in South America that uh, actually I stole from a movie. Um, we, we, we steal everything. Um, no, I, no, I really wanted to uh, make that scene as, as scary as possible. And uh, I, I don't write horror, but it was, it was, it was we're giving it away, yeah. But I mean, do you think of Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho and yeah. haunted houses? Sure. And how can I, what does this room look like? Yeah, you what? think about Stephen King? Yeah. You, know, you think about stuff you read? You think about the, the movies? Uh, Pet Cemetery still scares me. I mean, <laughs> Cujo by Stephen King, those books are still terrify me. And you wonder, how can one guy be this sick? And. Um, <laughs> I'm not that sick, but he, you know, I, I'm, I know Stephen very well. He, uh, he's a very funny guy, but he, you know, the way, he, the stuff he comes up with. And you, you know, again, again look, we have, we have a blank page. We have a blank page, we have plenty of time, we have unlimited freedom. And so you, you create, you think, okay, how can I really make this uh, terrifying, sad, whatever the scene calls for, except for sex, I can't do sex. You can't do sex and you can't do uh, filthy language. And obviously that sells a lot of books for some people. Why do you stay away from it? Well, 
my, I told myself early on, I'm, I, I'm never going to write a book my mom would be embarrassed to read. And um, when, the firm, when the firm came out, thank you. When the firm came out, I got a lot of letters from people who said, you know, to the effect, I read this book all night long. I was completely uh, entertained by the story. And when I got finished, I realized I could give the book to my 15-year-old kid or my 70-year-old mother. And that's one reason the firm sold a lot of copies. The one reason. Um, but I mean, I just, I just uh, you know, I try to, <laughs> try to avoid that kind of language. Uh, I was raised right. Uh, but, but my mom, uh, I just, she was never a big fan because she was, um, I think she was too afraid of popular culture and, and where it might go. But I, I just, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to embarrass her. And um, even she passed away four years ago and I've not been tempted. Although somebody told me there's more sex in my books now since my mom died. Uh, <laughs> I, I wrote one uh, 20 years ago. It's really a funny story. I was writing, I was trying to finish a book called, um, oh God, which one was it? Uh, anyway, so I've been embarrassed. But anyway, there, there was, it was the, um, the summons. And there was a time, a male, female character were getting kind of close. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to write a really a ramped up, exotic, erotic sex scene. Because it was late in the book, and at that point, when I finished the chapter, I would take it and give it to Renee and say, read it. This is, this is urgent. Wait, you read the chapter I'm writing. Let's go back and forth. Give her the program. Uh, and she's always, you know, got something else to do. And so I brought the chapter over with this really steamy sex scene. I was proud of it. I mean, it was, it was a real effort. It was a real effort to it. <laughs> and so uh, back then, Renee would take the, she, she never, this is funny, it's weird. Uh, I cannot be in the house when she's reading. I have to disappear, okay, because I, I want feedback because I'm trying to finish the book. And so I, she took the, she took the uh, chapter upstairs. I, and I sneaked out of the house and went for a walk, but I sneaked back in the house. And I sneaked upstairs. I heard her laughing. <laughs> Not a good sign. <laughs> laughing at my sex scene. She said, men cannot write sex. She said that, she has said that for 30 years. Men cannot write sex scenes. Only women can write sex scenes. So I said, okay, fine, I, I give up, I give up. Well, uh, you don't have the, the filthy language, but one of the, th the great things that appeals to everybody is your putting a steady stream of humor into your books. And usually it's sarcastic humor. So as you've got the blank page and you're creating these stories, kind of what's your approach to injecting humor into your stories? It's a huge problem because uh, in very tense situations, uh, some of the funniest things I ever saw happened in courtrooms when things are really tense mm -hmm. and, you know, the humor, you, you, everybody needs to laugh. You know, everybody wants to laugh. You're not expecting to laugh. So it's probably funnier than it really should be. Uh, but in a lot of these situations that are very tense and suspenseful, it's just irresistible to put in a, you know, a one-liner to catch everybody off guard. They almost all come out in editing. Uh, Renee will circle one. She does it all the time. This, you know, she, you can't, funny, funny, you can't leave this in. You know, that, that's what we do. 
uh, but I'm, I just enjoy it. That's why I loved a book called Skipping Christmas. It was the first time I could write a book, a comic novel, and just try to be as funny as I wanted to be. And it was a lot of, you know, it was very humorous, I thought. Um, the movie wasn't too funny, but the, the book was. But I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's just a, it's the way I think, the way I talk, the way I talk to you. Mm-hmm. We've, we've spent hours in conversation. It's just all, you know, it's a lot of sarcasm, light sarcasm, cheap shots, humor, you know. Another component in your books, almost everyone, maybe everyone, they have occasional riffs of moralizing. For example, in this book, Cullen Post and Guardian Ministries turn down the opportunity to represent a potentially innocent man in prison because he's obsessed with getting revenge against the person whose false testimony put him in jail. But then later in the book, you elevate a character when he chooses to forgive a wrongdoer whose perjury led to his bogus conviction. So what inspires you to include life lessons in your books? You know, I've been asked for 20 years if I'm a moralist, whatever that is. Uh, I think we all are. Don't we all have our own moral codes and we tend to judge people by what we believe? I think we all do that. Um, You know, you can't preach in popular fiction. You better stay off the soapbox. You cannot assume that your audience shares your views, your religion, your politics, or whatever. So there's a little bit of a little bit of that, but not much. I've been criticized in the past for being too political in certain stories, but that's the stories I, I happen to be telling. Uh, I don't I don't see it as moralizing. To me, it's just storytelling when morals get in the way. Well, in in the scene where you know, here's your main guy who's been in prison for decades in part because of the false testimony of his now ex-wife, and she later recants, and then she, in his uh, post-conviction hearing, says, yeah, that wasn't true, and she comes off the stand. Well, you could have done anything there. What inspired you to say, I think I want him to hug. I, th- I think I'll, I want to say something about reconciliation here. Because there's a lot of reconciliation with these guys. It's, a, it's astonishing when they get out after 20 years, um, when they finally get out, how um, you think they would be furious and vengeful and ready to kill. They're never that way. They're, they're grateful, they're touched, they're uh, emotional. They've been, you know, they've been institutionalized for 20 years, so their emotions come out later. But... Um, We've seen that. We've seen people before when they get out, confront uh, witnesses and say, okay, you know, everybody, everybody says, I'm sorry. And they, they hug and, you know, just a, a lot of tears. Mm-hmm. So some of these hearings are very, very emotional. And, and um, it's just, it's hard to believe that you could spend 20 years in prison for, you know, a crime somebody else committed because of the lies and misdeeds of certain people. And, get out and not feel uh, the need for a lot of revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they want to put all it behind them. They want to put it behind them almost always and enjoy the last 30 years of their lives. You know, they're, very, they're remarkably um, at peace, remarkably at peace. I was in Nashville last night doing a, a fundraiser for the Innocence Project, and there were four inmates there. One young man got out three months ago after spending 12 years First, a crime he never heard of, and and he was um, he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Did he explain why? He got very religious, 
very strong Christian faith in prison. He said it, it, it added character. It taught him these lessons about life. He's 40 years old now. He's got the rest of his life, and he's going to move. You know, you can't believe this stuff. Uh, you can't believe how strong people can be. Mm. Now, we talked uh, briefly about uh, films, and one of the life's great mysteries to me, every book of yours I read, I say, that's the greatest story I've ever read. I can hardly wait for the movie to come out. And about your first 10 or 12 books, there was a movie that came out. But then, all of a sudden, it stopped. So, so what is going on that these fantastic stories that you create are no longer being made into movies? So you expect me to explain Hollywood to you? <laughs> it, it, it baffles me because, as you say, those first, the first wave of movies 25 years ago, you had, you had big-time casts, big directors, uh, big budgets, big uh, domestic gross, big foreign, and those movies are still on television somewhere tonight, and everybody made money. You know, everybody, and that model doesn't work today in Hollywood. Uh, the, the Hollywood, as, as best I can tell, the, um, the model that Hollywood likes today is um, to spend 200 million bucks on uh, Spider-Man 10 uh, to, uh, with, the, with the hopes of grossing a billion in China and then a billion in the rest of the world. And if that works, it's okay. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But they, they, there's almost no interest to these days in making, in feature films, the smart adult drama that we all enjoy. How many times do you and Claire say, let's go to the movies? You got 18 films on, you know, showing. You don't want to see any of them. We do it every week. There's so few that you want to go see. Mm-hmm. It's just because the model's different. Mm-hmm. And every, everything, I have, everything I've written is for sale. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you do sell them to the movies, but they don't get made. They don't get made. We have not had a movie in 15 years. And uh, we've tried. We, I've stopped trying. I mean, I, they're still for sale, but I'm not getting involved in it. Uh, I've read so many bad scripts and had so many long conversations with directors I'll never talk to again. Um, there, there's several TV deals pending now, uh, but nothing's going to be filmed, to my knowledge, next year. It's just not, it's not, you know, it's just not happening. I, I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. All the talent is now going to television because there's so yeah. much good TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all watching our favorite shows, you know, that's exciting. Uh, Netflix is going to put pressure on to just release big movies uh, streaming, you know, and forget the theaters. That's a huge shift in the industry. You know, it's still all changing. Um, and, and there's a huge de- demand for content uh, that is established. And so all of my books <laughs> attract a lot of phone calls. Uh, just show me the movie. That's what I keep saying. Show me the movie. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen. I, I quit worrying about it. I, I, I just write the books. All right. Well, we have, uh, we're now going to move to the phase of the program where we have audience questions. And uh, so I've selected the ones that don't overlap. The, with e- the easy ones? That's yeah. Right. No, but the ones that I think you can hit out of the park, John, in this World Series time of year. Uh, somebody want to know, uh, did you always want to be a writer? And at what age did you know this is what I want to do? <laughs> no, it was, not a, it was not a childhood dream. It was not something I studied in college. It was not something I ever thought about. I was 30 years old, and I'd been a lawyer for, you know, four or five years. And uh, I, I got the idea for this courtroom drama. 
um, as played out through the eyes of a young lawyer in a small town. And, and you kind of look like Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I wish, I wish. <laughs> no, it just it, it happened. I never said, okay, I'm tired of being a lawyer, I'm going to be a writer. It was a gradual process with the first book and the second book, as I described. And then one day, uh, you know, when, when the firm hit overnight, it was, I, I walked out of the law office. I just walked out and walked out. Mm-hmm. Didn't even turn off the light, just walked out. So I'm done, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm done with being a lawyer. And uh, it was very gradual, but there was no, there was no uh, childhood dream or even a, a, as a student, a dream of writing books. Didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, we haven't talked about uh, a series that you put together for young readers, mm-hmm. the Theo Boone series. And there may be people in this audience who don't even know that you've done this. Thank you. But I think, I think it's a great story about how that, how that came to be. And hopefully people in the audience are going to hear it and say, I want to get my kids reading. Try one Theo Boone and, and you'll have, they'll want to read eight Theo Beans. So, so how'd that happen? Uh, which version of the story do you want to, are you talking about? They're always several. Your favorite. So my daughter's a school teacher in Raleigh and uh, her first year of teaching was about 10 years ago. She had a bunch of fifth graders, and she was uh, really pushing reading and literacy and making the kids read all kinds of books. And over dinner one night, she, she asked me, she said, could you write suspense for kids? I said, I've never thought about that. She said they have a lot of books, they have you know, a lot of uh, fantasy, historical fiction, all kinds of books for kids. But she said, I can't find any real good suspense. And I started thinking about it. And so I, I concocted this uh, character. Uh, Theodore Boone is a 13-year-old kid. He'll always be 13. And his, both of his parents are lawyers. He's an only child. And he thinks he's a lawyer because his, he knows so much about the law. It's all they talk about is the law. And he gives uh, free and often wrong legal advice to his friends. <laughs> <laughs> and he's always getting in trouble, but he's, uh, he's, you know, he's, he has a lot of adventures with the law and with his friends. And, and it's it's become a, a whole lot of fun. I've written seven of them now. The seventh one came out uh, last spring. So uh, I, I, hope, I hope it goes on. I'm beginning to worry about sustaining you know, the series after seven books. Uh, they're fun to write. They're easy to write. Uh, the kids so far enjoy them. And with each book, I, I try to work in a couple of legal issues mm-hmm. yeah. to Very educate kids about the law and about trials and courtrooms and judges and what happens and um and it's been a that's been a success because i've heard from a lot of teachers who've taken their kids to i got a, I, got a, I got a letter from a federal judge in california uh a couple of years a few years ago uh a teacher bought her kids they, they'd read several theo books they want they want to go to court so she took them to federal court on a field trip and cleared it with the judge and during recess the kids came into the judge's chambers and uh, they discussed the law, the issues. They, they, they knew about the case. It was a criminal case. And they had the lingo, the terminology. They were asking questions. And he was very impressed with how much the kids knew because of Theo. And he wrote me the nicest letter. You know, I, I get a lot of nice letters. Uh, but when it came from a federal judge, I thought, God, what have, what have I done now? <laughs> Especially in California. I get sued a lot, okay? So the lawsuits are always fun. But I get letters like that all the time that make it, make it really worthwhile. Well, we've talked some about your lawyering career. Uh, and here's an interesting question. Did the career of lawyering 
became so frustrating and seemingly hopeless for real justice that you thought, I gotta do something more that would be more satisfying. No, it wasn't like that. I was never, um, you know, as, as worked up as I am over wrongful convictions, I never had a client uh, who I thought was wrongfully convicted. We had, we had good cops, good prosecutors. I knew them well. We had two judges, my mentors, in a small town who ran a tight ship. And you better not come in there with some, um, you know, bogus claim of defense if it wasn't true. Or the prosecutor shouldn't walk in there with some, you know, bogus claim of a crime. He, they were in tight ships. I, I, didn't, I didn't see, um, I never thought about wrongful convictions. In, in rural Mississippi, because we, it was all, and that's, that's the way most places are. Thank God, I still believe that. Most of our jurisdictions run like that. But there are enough bad ones to cause a lot of problems. And um, I, I also missed the first wave of uh, wrongful convictions in the 1990s, the first wave of DNA stuff. I, I, I was asleep, and I, I try to watch that stuff, and so I, I missed that. But no, I, the frustration with the law was simply being a small-town lawyer, um, you know, with... 15 law offices lined up on Main Street, a lot of competition. Uh, most clients couldn't pay fees, and, you know, it's just it was a tough way to make a buck. And, uh, you know, what I probably, and we were happy. We were, we were young and happy at a career, happy family. My parents are close by, my wife's parents are close by, and brothers and sisters are small town. Life was good. It was not like I was frustrated. I, could have, I was in the state legislature. I, I was thinking about becoming a judge. I think what would have happened... Uh, I probably could have been elected judge, you know, probably 25 years ago um, because I was looking for a steady paycheck. <laughs> I was tired of the ups and downs of the law practice. And I, I enjoyed being a judge. I was a city judge in my hometown for a while. And I thought I'll be a circuit judge on the state level and apply myself and learn and keep learning and learning the law. And then maybe one day be in line for a federal judgeship. That's kind of what I was thinking down the road. Uh, when I started, when, when, when the firm came out, and that changed everything overnight, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we do have some young people in the, in the audience today who presumably are at least thinking about a career in law. So the question is, if you were considering a career in law as a young student today, which field do you think you'd want to pursue? Well, um, probably public interest law. I have not met too many happy lawyers. <laughs> Big firm guys are burned out. Uh, small town guys are squeezed out. Um, the big firm guys make a lot of money but pay a dear price with the quality of life. You've seen that here. Uh, you, you've lived it firsthand. Uh, there are a million small town guys who, who can't survive. Um, do you know many happy lawyers? Well, as I was working on the introduction in, in Gray Mountain where you talked about the young woman lawyer who got laid off her Wall Street firm and then she went to do legal aid in the, in the coal mines of Southwest Virginia representing real people with real problems, I think those probably are the happiest lawyers. The, I know a handful of really successful lawyers who love what they do. Not very many, honestly, and then over the last 30 years. Uh, I know a lot of public interest lawyers who have found causes they believe in, environmental or uh, youth advocacy or uh, immigration law, 
where they don't have to worry about billing or, you know, or what the overhead is. They work for a nonprofit. They don't make it, most of them don't make as much money. Some, some do okay. They're committed to a cause. Those are very happy lawyers. Those are the ones who, who enjoy what they do, who, who wake up every day with a purpose and, and, and love going to the office as, as a general rule. That's been my experience. Well, since I have law partners here, I will say I love where I am yeah, now. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> which happens to be true, by the way. Which happens to be true, by the way. But, but here's a question. Be and careful. I, and I think you've touched on it. Which of your books was the most difficult to write and why? I think I know the answer. What's the answer? You've only written... <laughs> You've only written one nonfiction. Oh, nonfiction, book. yeah, uh, by far, because of the research. Uh, you I didn't think, have a blank page. No, and I, I, I'm not a journalist. I, I didn't know. I didn't know how. I, did, I didn't know the rules of journalism or investigative journalism. Or uh, there were so many times when I was researching uh, the innocent man when I would, I would come across a great fact that I needed. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I wanted, okay? That's when you get in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to use it in the story, mm -hmm. but I, I, I couldn't verify it. Or maybe I could verify it once, but not twice. Or maybe I didn't like the source of that fact. And I was constantly struggling with that. And I also knew that the book would be, um, uh, let's say, heavily scrutinized by people I was writing about. I knew I'd get sued. You did? I did, yeah. Uh, but I kind of knew that was coming because these are, these are, these are not nice people. And so, uh, but just the sheer volume of research. I hired a full-time research assistant uh, to just dig through the tens of thousands of documents you know, that we had to go through. I had no idea how big that project would be. I've said I would love to write so many of these innocent stories, wrongful convictions, because they're great stories, as sad as they are. Um, but they take so much time. And I've, I've done it once, I probably won't do it again. Mm -hmm. I want, because John is such a fantastic storyteller, he, through the years I've heard him tell these two stories twice that at the time uh, he didn't realize how important they were in shaping him toward becoming a writer. The first one had to do when you were at Delta State University trying to make the baseball team and your coach was Boo Ferris. Tell that story. Well, Boo pitched for the Red Sox in 1946. He, I think he still holds the record as the only rookie pitcher to beat every other American League team in his first game on the road. He held, he held some kind of record. He was headed for the Hall of Fame, and he had an arm injury, and he was, he was my coach at um, Delta State. And um, he, he, was known, he was such a great guy, but he was known to, give, to be very generous with walk-ons. And I was a walk-on. I needed generosity. <laughs> I, need, I need patience, okay, and uh, and he he realized there was not much talent there, and when he when he cut me, um, he said, you know, take my advice, pursue the books and forget about baseball, <laughs> and then you know, twenty years later, um, when the firm came out, he sent me a note and he said, you followed my advice. You <laughs> Now, the other one had to do when you were at Ole Miss Law School, and you had your professor, Robert Kayat. Yeah. Uh, tell the story of uh, that final exam. Well, it was, it was the first semester torts exam, and, and the exams are, you have one exam per class per semester. Is it still that way? They still do it that way? 
It's crazy. Uh, well, I mean, I hadn't been in law school in 41 years. But I hope I, I think so. <laughs> I hope they've changed it. They probably had. So you'd have one huge exam at the end of the semester, a four-hour exam. And, um, and I got through the first three exams. I was sitting for the torts exam. And uh, it, was a diff- it was a fair exam, but it was difficult. And I got to the last legal problem. And these professors love to create these massively complex legal problems. They, they think they're really cute. They think they can write, you know, this fancy, fun fiction. And you've you got to decipher it and, and clean it all up and write, write a cogent, you know, long, thorough analysis of these impossible problems. That's what the typical law school exam is. <laughs> That's why I hated law school. And so <clears throat> I got to the last one. And uh, I, I didn't get it. The clock was about to run out. You're, you're enormous pressure. And you've got to write in longhand these things. And uh, I, I didn't get it. I couldn't find the, the, the legal issues. And so I just started writing about you know, the characters in the story. And I wrote about this and went on and on, page and page and page. And I walked out of the exam ready to cry. I said, I've blown this exam. And, uh, went home for Christmas and came back in January to, before the internet, nothing was posted. We had to, you had to go to the law professor's door in his office. You could see your name up there your, or your ID number and see your grade. And that's what I did. And I, and I made a better grade than what I thought I was going to make. And the professor was there. And he was a great professor. And he, I said, can I see my exam? He said, sure, I'm here if you want to talk about it. And I took the exam and I went to the next room by myself and I read through it and did okay until the last problem. And he had marked it all up with red ink, and it was a total train wreck. I knew that. And at the very end, he said, although you missed most of the legal issues in this problem, you have a real talent for fiction. (laughs) And he became chancellor of Ole Miss uh, in 1989. when the time to kill came out, uh, we, we we had been in touch over the years because we're still in touch. And um, he called one day and he said, "Do you remember your torts exam?" <laughs> I said, "He said I knew you could do it. I knew you could do it." He, uh-huh. now, now, John, we got an audience full of people here who hang on your every book. One of the questions that was actually submitted that I'm not going to ask you, but you can get on the internet and find the answer. How old are you? I'm 64. And not bored, still having fun. Well, that that, that was ultimately the question. Have you lost any of your passion? I feel like you have more passion for for writing these bubbles, whether it's Theo, whether it's the legal theater. You know, I get, um, I think I get angrier today. Angrier? Angrier. About uh, things. Yeah, about about, um, uh, legal injustice and things that we do in this, in our system that we could fix and save a zillion bucks and a lot of misery if we just do it. If we had the, the will to do it uh, politically, it's all, all about changing laws. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm opposed to the death penalty. It's not about abolishing the death penalty, but that upsets me. But there are a lot of other areas that we could clean up uh, in, our, in our legal system and prevent wrongful convictions. We could almost wipe out wrongful convictions if we would just enact six or seven pretty basic laws. You know, that bothers me. Uh, I'm still fascinated by Joe Bryan. You know, again, these guys I correspond with in prison, I'm pen pals with several of them, and oftentimes I'll, I'll think about them, the ones I've met, and I think, you know, I'm here living a good life, and they're locked away in, 
you know, some terrible prison, and we're both innocent. And that's still, I carry that around. And I, I, I still, um, I, I think I'm angrier now than I was five years ago. Are you willing to tell the audience what you're going to do tomorrow? No. <laughs> no, uh, we, we shouldn't broadcast that. Okay. We'll talk about tomorrow night. All right. Anyway, to me, what separates... It's not that, it's not that... I'm going to a prison tomorrow, but, I, but I, we, 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 we agreed not to broadcast it, so. Okay. Uh, I've been to a lot of prisons in Texas. I've been to a lot of prisons uh, uh, in a lot of states, and um, I got the tour of Huntsville several years ago, and uh, the death chamber and, the, you know, all the different rules and procedures, and so I've done that in many states, and uh, I'm going to another one tomorrow. How does Texas compare to... Well, it's a bit more active. <laughs> it's much more efficient. Uh, well, you know, I, I live in Virginia. Texas is number one right now in execution. We're number two. Um, so uh, I can't throw stones. Um, they're all bad. They're all bad. What, what you, what, what's disturbing is uh, even in some of the federal camps, and these are pretty nice places without walls, uh, where the guys have a pretty good, you know, pretty good life. And what you see nowadays, because our prison population is, has aged, they've been there for so long, there's so many of them, uh, these guys have no place to go, and they don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. And so we're in, they require more and more health care, more and more, you know, you got to feed them and take care of them. They, they get health care at some level. It's not always good, but that's what we're, we're realizing. Before the last election, we were having some real uh, progress with um, criminal justice reform from both sides. The Republicans are tired of paying for it, and they see the cost of corrections. It's enormous, okay? Democrats want, you know, uh, to protect, uh, you know, human rights or rights or whatever, criminal rights. So both sides are coming together and making real progress. And then when Sessions took office, they killed all that. So we're, we're, hope, we're hopeful that, you know, sometime soon we can start making progress again. There's a lot of support for criminal justice reform from both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I've had the privilege of knowing John for 15 years now. I think you realize now he's a lot more than just an entertaining writing. He, he believes in his causes. He believes in uh, the importance of... Uh, writing things that are uh, persuasive and and are not uh, something that are in any way embarrassing in terms of putting anything risque. It's just gut level, important stories that, as I said in my introduction, this is a way we're going to change minds to get people more mindful of the, the issues we've talked about tonight and hopefully funding legal aid, funding the Innocence Project, leaning on people who are obstacles to uh, improving the criminal uh, justice system. And I don't think anybody's doing a better job of it these days than our guest, John Grisham. Thanks a million. Hey, let me say, let me say uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank, listen, thank you folks for buying the books and reading the books. It means a lot to me. I, I don't take it for granted. Uh, when I start another book, I, I, I can't think about all the folks who are going to read it. 
but I do think about each time I say, okay, I, th- th- this book I'm writing now, I'm starting now, uh, I have a lot of people who are going to read it, and I want them to enjoy it, to be entertained by it, to maybe be moved by it, but I want this book to be the best one I've ever written. And as long as they're still enjoyed by you folks and they're successful, uh, I'll keep writing, hopefully for a long time. You keep reading, I'll keep writing, okay? <laughs> Thank you. John Grisham is the greatest storyteller of my generation. We did the program you just heard in Dallas, and then two days later, we did it again for the Texas Book Festival in Austin. He's not just a great writer, but as you just heard in the interview, he's a great person, and he's been a great friend to me over the last 15 years. You can find John's new book, The Guardians, wherever books are sold, because it's sure to continue his string of number one bestsellers that he's had going for the last 30 years. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.